Welcome to the RVC Clinical Podcast. My name is Dominic Barfield, and today we're going to talk about the EPIC study, Hot Off the Press. It's great that veterinary studies are latching onto the catchy names in the medical field uh, given to study names. So the EPIC study is looking at the effect of pimabendan in dogs with preclinical myxomatous mitral valve disease and cardiomegaly. So this paper has been published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine, and with all their publications, they're open access, which means you can log on to any computer in the world and go to the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine website and retrieve this article. So I encourage you to go and read it. You could even pause this podcast now, go to the site, download it, and have it to read in front of you. So today I'm joined by Professor Boswood, lead author of the paper, with uh, the other heavyweights in the verticomments of the veterinary cardiology world. So good afternoon, Professor, and thank you for letting me press gang you into having a chat today. Pleasure, and good afternoon to you as well. First of all, I'd like to say congratulations on orchestrating, uh, contributing, and, and panning this study. It's, it's obviously a huge in, endeavour, uh, which recruitment to the study began um, six years ago this month, I, That's right. I believe. Um, and in particular, collaborations across different centres in different countries. It must have been very difficult to wrangle that number of cardiologists, as I struggle to, uh, to wrangle any cardiologists within uh, our own institution. Um, it was... Um, it was a great challenge, but at the same time also a great privilege to be able to lead a group like that. Um, necessarily, when the study was beginning, it meant that we had to get everyone together, discuss the protocol, get everyone to agree. And clearly, the larger the number of people involved, the less likely it is that everyone will agree. Um, but we... We in, in the end, we all decided we were happy to proceed with uh, with the study, and I'm very glad we did. Excellent, excellent. See, so, so can I uh, first ask Professor Boswood where, where the actual idea came from? Well, we knew from studies we published several years ago that um, pimabendan was clearly effective in dogs once they went into heart failure. Um, but the problem with... Um, exclusively treating dogs once they go into heart failure is very much that's the last stage of mitral valve disease. And, and what we would like to be able to do, and actually what previous studies had tried with other drugs, was to see whether or not there is a benefit of intervention in this disease before patients go into heart failure. Now, there is a pathophysiological rationale for why the drug may work in terms of its vasodilating effects, in terms of its inotropic effects. And so we thought it's worth having a look. And there's this lovely phrase that, that we used quite a lot at the outset with this study, is that in order to do a study, you need optimistic uncertainty. Um, if you know the drug works, it's unethical to do the study because some dogs are being systematically denied it. But you wouldn't undertake the study unless you thought the drug had at least a chance of working. So we were optimistic that it might work, but we didn't know. And that's why we looked. OK. So, so would you mind, because I think it would help with the actual paper itself, just, just briefly explaining the, the different stages of the mixed mitral valve disease that are classified? So... The disease begins with degeneration of the mitral valve, and, and the, the processes that underlie that degeneration really aren't very well understood. The, what happens is the initial phase is there is simply a leak in the valve, and if that is a fairly small leak, then it's really of no consequence at all to the animal. So for, in, in many dogs, a very lengthy phase of the disease, the only detectable abnormality is that they have a leak in their valve. They have an audible heart murmur, but that is all. 
Now that phase of the disease with a leak in the valve and a normal size heart is what is termed stage B1 of the disease. Some dogs, and not all of them, at stage B1 of the disease will have progressive disease where, as a consequence probably of the leak in the valve becoming progressively worse, the heart will no longer be able to compensate or cope if it remains a normal size. So the heart begins to enlarge and the two chambers of the heart classically that enlarge are the left ventricle and the left atrium and so they then go through a phase of the disease where they remain compensated for the disease so they're not showing any outward sign but the only way they can remain compensated is by having a bigger heart than normal. So we call that stage of the disease stage B2. Now we recognize that once dogs have gone into stage B2, they're at very high risk of then subsequently progressing onto the next stage of the disease, which is when they develop overt signs of heart failure, what we call congestive heart failure. And dogs who have signs of congestive heart failure are in stage C of the disease, and or late congestive heart failure, we may even call stage D. So we knew the drug worked in stage C and we were looking to see if the drug would work in stage B2. Now that's a very important distinction because we didn't look to see if the, the, the drug worked in all dogs. We only looked to see if it worked in dogs who had evidence of enlargement of their heart. And also this, the, the stage that you looked at, is that comparable to the previous studies that looked at ACE inhibitors and their effects in this yeah. stage? Um, it's very similar. There, there were two studies on ACE inhibitors. Um, there was one that was called the SVEP study, um, and that enrolled all dogs with preclinical mitral valve disease, whether they had an enlarged heart or not. So effectively, all stage B dogs, B1 and B2. And in the analysis of that study, they subdivided the dogs into, to look to see if the drug worked in B1 or B2, and basically they showed it didn't work in either. There was another study called the VET-proof study, which also looked at the effect of enalapril, and the VET-proof study only recruited dogs with enlarged hearts and actually used pretty similar inclusion criteria to the ones that we used. Particularly, they used a left atrial to aortic ratio being increased as being an inclusion criterion. And actually, that study was very useful for our study um, among other things, in terms of predicting how the placebo group were likely to behave. So it allowed us to predict what the placebo group would do, and therefore it helped our power calculation to work out what magnitude of effect we would expect with the drug. Okay. And the, the crux of your studies at the end of your introduction was to look at the use of pimodendan in dogs with increased heart size, who's secondary to... to um, mixed mitral valve disease but not on any cardiac medication and looking that if that delay the onset of congestive heart failure cardiac death or euthanasia yeah so effectively broadly what we wanted to do was delay the onset of clinical signs and so what we asked ourselves was what are the clinical signs that are most likely to occur in these dogs and therefore um how you know how, how can we measure that happening how will we know it that we've that they've started to show signs the majority of dogs with valve disease who progress on to show some sort of sign 
um, will progress on to develop left-sided congestive heart failure. But what we didn't want to do is miss or potentially ignore the small population of dogs where the first sign that they show is either sudden death or presenting in such extreme circumstances that the owners choose to have them put to sleep rather than medicate them. So if we'd only measured time to onset of congestive heart failure, we would effectively have ignored a small population of dogs, but we expected that the most, the, the, the most evident signs that dogs would, would develop would be signs of heart failure, as it turned out. That was correct. Excellent. There um, is a significant number of studies that are published in high-impact factor medical journals which involve either directly or indirectly funding from drug companies and it was uh, great to read that in your paper that the drug company which funded the study allowed you and your co-authors full access to the results to publish regardless of the of the trial outcome. So can you explain if that was actually difficult to get them to do in, in writing? It wasn't because I've previously collaborated with the same company on two previous studies where that was written into the contract. So it was, you know, by this point in our relationship, they knew that that was an expectation. Um, the reason that that is so important is to avoid what is called publication bias. There, there is a tendency to some extent, journals are blamed for it, but actually I think more um, funders of research should be blamed for it. There is a, a tendency for negative studies not to be published. And that has a somewhat um, damaging effect on, on the literature because good studies from which we could learn things don't make it into the literature because the drug wasn't shown to be effective. And secondly, and perhaps more worryingly, if it's not already known that a clinical trial has been done with that drug in that type of animal, someone one day may repeat a study that is already known to be futile and risk damage to animals being in that study simply because previous people didn't publish it. And, and so I think that there is increasingly an ethical expectation that if you're undertaking a big study, um, you should, as far as is possible, insist that you have the right to publish. Do you, do you think that there might be scope to have an international database, as I know exists with, with, in people in the medical field, of ongoing studies to, to, to avoid this thing happening? Certainly, that's the way in the medical field. The high-impact factor journals um, have ensured that all studies will be published in that you have to register your clinical trial. It gets a clinical trial number. And if you suddenly were to approach a journal with a previously unregistered clinical trial and said, we'd like to publish this, they would say, no, sorry, it's not a registered clinical trial. So they, that's the way in which they can police it. In order to do that, you would require a very high-level collaboration between journals and also an openness and transparency among funders of research, um, which is not necessarily um, present currently. I mean, we were very open with, with our study in that really from the outset, we let people know that it was going on and what the inclusion criteria were and everything else. So that built up an expectation that the, the trial results would at one point become available. So um, we couldn't have not published.
Excellent. And I was really fascinated about the description of the blinding you had of the of the of the patients. And would you mind briefly explaining this and, and why you went to such great lengths to to have the uh, the patients and collaborators blinded? The purpose of blinding in any clinical trial is to avoid any bias in the evaluation of that patient by anyone who is making some sort of potentially subjective decision. Um, and so the people who can be biased are the owners might be biased in terms of their assessment of things like exercise tolerance or cough. The attending vet might be biased if they thought the drug worked or if they didn't think the drug worked. Um, and also the, um, the people who are doing things like data entry, making decisions about patients, if they're not blinded, they may be biased in terms of things that they do. And we want to avoid that bias altogether. We want to avoid accusations of bias, even down to the point where for analysis of data, um, some big organizations like the FDA insist that statisticians need to be blinded to which group is which in terms of the analysis that they do. So it's widely recognized the potential that not being blinded can have in terms of the introduction of bias, and we wanted to avoid that altogether so that we could avoid accusations of that. Because in a study with potentially quite big ramifications, everyone's going to want to try to find a way to undermine your conclusions, and one of the ways to undermine them is say, well, you were biased. Um, if we can show that we went to great lengths to avoid any bias, we make it much more difficult for people to level that sort of, of accusation at us. Excellent. Thank you for, for that. See, I, I was number crunching a, a little earlier this this morning, and and uh, and thinking about the the, the cost, because uh, invariably there's always a cost with uh, with veterinary care. Um, and looking even to your your primary endpoint, uh, or I suppose that doesn't matter, but the, but the, the the relative cost these days is of pimavendan seems to be on the uh, a quick Google uh, online pharmacy search. It might be about for a ten kilo dog, fifty two p a day for for a dose, which is actually um, uh, I don't think you can buy much, not even a newspaper these days, for 52p. So that's so, so it's it, it's quite good that not only this drug is uh, um, obviously like widely available and, and shown to be beneficial as we as we go on to talk about, but but actually not a significant cost uh, in comparison to a number of other medications that that uh, um, that are used in studies these days. Yeah, I, I agree. And the there are always going to be people for whom even 50p a day might represent a lot of money. And, and so there may still be people who um, cannot afford the level of care that can now be offered. But at that price, the majority of people can afford it and it shouldn't have that much financial impact on their life. So it is very nice to know um, that this is something that's already accessible um, and already relatively cheap for people to be able to make such a significant difference to the, the outcome of their dog's life. So, yeah, I think it, it is, among other things that's good about it, is that it is affordable. Absolutely. So your, your 
results uh, show that the difference in median survival was uh, 157 days, obviously, the, uh, the, the, the calculation between Pimavendan and the control group, mm -hmm. which is about 22 weeks or a little over four months. That's for survival. That's for survival, yeah. And actually, it took an average, it's an additional 462 days or 50 months to develop signs of uh, congestive heart failure, so your, your primary endpoint. So were you, were you surprised by those results? Um, the, if you look at our power calculation, we were actually remarkably close in our power calculation to the way that things fell out in the results. Um, so I guess not surprised, I, I guess uh, um, pleasantly uh, reassured. If you, we, with our power calculation, basically what we did, we took the data from the placebo group in, well, actually, we took the data from both groups in, in the VetProof study and estimated an average time to the onset of heart failure would be about 800 days. So for, in our study, it was 750-something, um, so pretty much bang on. We then took an, an estimate of the hazard ratio. And, and actually, what I prefer to talk about, or it may get a bit technical, is the hazard ratio rather than median survival times. I think comparison of median survival times can be a little bit deceptive because really what you're doing there is you're saying, you know, the median dog in one group compared to the median dog in the other group that gave 400 odd days. But there were some dogs in the Pimabendan group who'd gone into heart failure well before 400 days. So we can't expect every dog that goes on to Pimabendan to live another 400 days guaranteed before it goes into heart failure. But more realistically, what we can do is we can say, by how much did we reduce the risk of going into heart failure? That's where a hazard ratio comes in. We estimated a hazard ratio of about 0.667, and what that really means is we thought that the hazard of the treatment group would be about two-thirds that of the placebo group, or we would reduce the risk by about one-third. And we pretty much came in on that number um, in the, the hazard ratio from the, the, the um, log rank analysis, so their primary endpoint analysis was in the region of about 0.65. And when you take account of all of the other confounding factors in the multivariable analysis, our hazard ratio was about 0.54, which is a risk reduction of 46%. We nearly halved the risk of going into heart failure by administering pimabendan. Um, so lots of different ways of looking at it. I think hazard ratio is a bit more difficult to get your head around, and it's a bit more difficult to explain to owners, but it's probably a more honest representation of the effect of the drug. Absolutely, and, and and people can understand probably with all the online betting sites uh, a reduction in risk. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. So, so why do you think that pimavendan is is having this uh, this effect? There, if you look at the known mechanisms of action of pimavendan, um, then we can say it's a vasodilator, it's an inotrope, um, it does these things. But there are other drugs that are vasodilators, and there are other drugs that are inotropes, and the, those that at least the vasodilators that have been tried did not seem to be effective for this. And so it is possible that our current understanding of how the drug works is really not adequate to explain all of the effects. One thing that's really quite notable from several studies, so it was shown before um, in some of the earliest studies that were done with pimabendan, we showed it in um, the QUEST trial, which was treating dogs at stage C. We showed it in the PROTECT study, which was looking at dogs with dilated cardiomyopathy. 
Introducing pimabendan is associated with a reduction in heart size. Now, is that simply because of the hemodynamic effects? Is it contracting down to a smaller heart size more effectively? Whatever is bringing about that reduction in heart size, one possibility about its effect in mitral valve disease is, are we, by reducing the heart size, actually reducing the magnitude of the regurgitant jet? One of the things that we've speculated about as the authors of the paper is, is this a pharmacological annulaplasty? Are we actually reducing the size of the mitral valve annulus and by doing so leading to a more favourable outcome? Pure speculation. What we can say from the study is it works. Um, we don't necessarily know precisely how it works, but it might be through an effect on heart size. Excellent. Um, you also comment in the, in the paper about the quality of life, and, and as I um, understand, there is no necessary difference between the, the between the groups. So my question would be: Do you think that anyone should feel they're doing a disservice to patients under their care if they're not placing these patients on pimabindan? There was no difference between the two groups in quality of life at baseline but then of course we wouldn't expect there to be yeah. because neither of the groups was on treatment at that point in time what we have not yet done although it's data that we have gathered is analyzed the longitudinal data on quality of life now given that if i go into heart failure i have a poor quality of life what we have shown, even if the two groups remain absolutely equivalent over the period before they reach the end point, so if their quality of life is indistinguishable before they reach the end point, what we can conclude is that the quality of life of the dogs on placebo deteriorates before the quality of life of the dogs on pimabendan. So that's one of the things that's a little less tangible about a study that's about prevention of something because you're not taking a dog that's ill and making it better you're taking a dog that's not yet ill and keeping it well for longer and and that's I think a whole change in mindset that we're now going to have to make after the results of this study now whether that prolongation of quality of life is worthwhile is a cost-benefit analysis on the basis of the client. Um, am I willing to spend this amount of money to have my dog live this amount of time longer? And as we spoke earlier, it's not an awful lot of money for quite a considerable benefit in terms of um, improvement in quality and length of life. So I think most clients will opt for it. I, I, uh, I completely agree. So as well, I think your 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 paper is a, is a, a not only excellent meticulously designed as, as I, would, I would expect from you, sir. But uh, um, I, I did like your your comment about even mentioning the the risk of premature ending of studies and in interim yeah. analysis and um, over benefiting the the treatment effect. So, for example, in, in more my interest in in uh, um, in the in the medical field, the example of Catherine Maitland's study looking at fluid boluses in African children with severe infection, which was called the FEAST trial, actually showed harm when children were given fluid boluses. So, the, the reason why I'm mentioning it is that the data um, that they analysed at different breakpoints actually showed benefit that that was significant at the time. So, so was this by design so that that you did not want to have interim analysis earlier in the study? The, the interim analysis is, is a really 
it in itself, uh, as you clearly um, reveal, is a very um, controversial topic. When do you do it? How frequently you do, it? do you do it? How do you account for that in your final analysis? All of those sorts of things. When we designed the study, however, we were doing a study for five years, and that's a very long time to leave animals without any form of monitoring. Now, because pimbabendan was already a licensed drug, um, there is standard monitoring of um, the, any adverse reactions just through normal pharmacological reporting of adverse reactions. And so we could have had some hint if there'd been a lot of adverse reactions that were being reported. So, so the two, there, there are really two main reasons. You could argue there are three main reasons for doing an interim analysis. One of them is safety. You want to make sure that your dogs are not being subjected to harm by being on the trial. Um, one of them is futility. Um, if you're doing a trial and after you've gathered a lot of data um, at an interim point where you might expect the groups to be diverging in some respect, there is absolutely no difference between the two groups. You might turn around and say, this is futile, let's not continue. And there have been some studies that have been abandoned for that reason. And then the third reason is what you might call overwhelming efficacy. And, and what you do is you set a higher bar to jump over to demonstrate overwhelming efficacy than you would do, say, for demonstrating a concern over safety. And that's what we built into the study. What you do is, given how far you are into the study when you do the interim analysis, how much data you've gathered, how much time animals have spent in the study, all of those things, you can say the study is X percent complete. Therefore, what p-value should we need for the animals to exceed to be quite comfortable that this is a genuine effect and not just exaggerating the effect because we're doing interim analyses? So we were very careful about how we did that. And actually... As it turned out, we were very glad that we did the interim analysis because that it was on the basis of that trigger that we stopped the trial. But it was therefore all the more important that we had to consider very carefully, were we doing exactly the right thing? That was a big decision to take. And was that with your collaborators that you... Well, what we did, as, as we explained, is that we appointed initially an independent um, interim analysis committee. And the independent committee consisted of two people who weren't investigators. They were external to the study. And what that meant was they could be unblinded. They could be told what was going on. And the, um, the, the, the only outcome, really, that they could report to us was two things. Was one, carry on with the study. That's it. Don't get told anything. Or stop the study. And so when they contacted us and said, you need to think about stopping the study, that was quite a big moment. They then, in discussion with us, said, this is why you think we think you need to stop the study. So they, they, they didn't have the power themselves, although clearly they could make a very convincing argument, they didn't have the power themselves to just stop the study without consulting the lead committee and the sponsor. But we then sat down with them. Actually, at that point as lead investigator, because I was no longer managing any cases, um, I was able to be unblinded um, and then with them take the decision, let's, let's, let's stop the study, because um, the, the results were at that point convincing. 
Excellent. So general practice, as you, as you well know, so is, a, is a busy place. And I understand that the echocardiography that you performed in, in, the, in the patients was probably to irrefutably state the, the uh, mitral valve disease that was present. So I, I suppose my, my question is more, um, do, do you think that the, the breeds you mentioned and the obvious poster child for the disease, the Cavalier King Charles, should definitively have radiographs taken to make sure that their vertebral heart score is greater than that 10 and a half uh, um, figure or, or they, they definitely do have a heart grade man, which is grade three? So I suppose the question is, what what would your recommendations be to practitioners about when the decision should be made that this will have a benefit? Is there too early? And I suppose what, what in essence, are your recommendations? I think my recommendations on this study have to be to generalise the results. You can say animals like those recruited to the study will benefit from the treatment. And what that means, and I do recognise this is a barrier, but what that means is we need to demonstrate that those animals have both echocardiographic and radiographic evidence of increase in their heart size. The, the reason for that is what I would call effectively a risk-benefit calculation. Um, the less likely an animal is to benefit from the treatment, the more, light, the more risk there is that you're administering a drug to them that they don't need and to which they may have an adverse reaction. And as far as I, well, as far as I know, um, and as far as we can't make any conclusions from this study about stage B1 dogs, what we can, what we can definitely say from this study is if you look at how at risk were dogs of going into heart failure from, from some of the things that we found in our multivariable analysis, the bigger your left ventricle, the bigger your left atrium, the more likely you were to go into heart failure. So actually, if a dog had a left atrial size of 1.6 and got into the study, if it had a left atrial size of 1.7 or 1.8 or 1.9, it was at even more risk of heart failure and therefore would probably um, benefit to, to have a greater absolute re risk reduction going on to the treatment. We can't draw any conclusions about dogs that weren't in the study. Kind of an obvious thing to say. Um, uh, but So I don't think there are any shortcuts at the moment, unfortunately. And what that means is we need clear evidence of cardiac enlargement. If there was anything that we could miss, I would speculate that we could miss the radiograph and just go with the echo. To explain a little bit why, when we sat down and wrote this protocol in 2009, 2010, when we were drafting it, what we wanted to do was to ensure the dogs going into the study had big hearts. And we sat around and we said, how can we judge that? And the thing that we really agreed on, the three of us as lead investigators, was a big left atrium, left atrial to aortic ratio. But we didn't want just one criterion. And the reason we didn't want just one criterion is everyone knows you can get an inaccurate single measurement of left atrial to aortic ratio, overestimate it, dog goes on to treatment it didn't need. So what we had was effectively a belt and braces approach. You know, the left atrial to aortic ratio is kind of the clincher, but in order to make sure that we didn't recruit unsuitable dogs, we needed their left ventricular size to be above a certain level and their vertebral heart score to be above a certain level. Now, interestingly, if you look in the literature... A normalised left ventricular diameter of 1.7 is in the normal range. 
the, the abnormal is above about 1.859, 1.9, depending on how you read it. So that's nudging the top of the normal range, but still normal. And a, a vertebral heart score of 10.5 is in the normal range for some dogs, particularly cavaliers, actually. Um, and so what it was, the left atrial to aortic ratio was the definitely abnormal measurement at 1.6, and the other two were kind of qualifiers. The other reason we used 1.7 is some years ago, um, we published a paper that showed that dogs were at greater risk of death due to mitral valve disease if their normalized left ventricular diameter was more than about 1.75. So although still in the normal range, that was the kind of risk cutoff. So various reasons why we chose those criteria, but probably the most difficult one to meet is the left atrial size one, which would make me tend towards using echo rather than the radiographs. But, and then final comment on that, to address the thing about um, the echo, we actually wanted to avoid any very complex echocardiographic measurements as being inclusion criteria. So actually the two that we've chosen are dead simple. They're both either a two-dimensional or M-mode measurement that would be acquired from standard right parasternal view. So there's nothing complex. There's no Doppler tissue imaging or anything else going on here. It's just straightforward measurement of left ventricular and left atrial size on some standard echo view. So not that difficult to obtain for someone who's reasonably competent at echo. Thank you very much. And is there anything that you uh, would have liked to say in the paper that maybe the, the reviewers uh, pull, pulled back or, or retracted or, or not necessarily agreed by them? No, actually. I think that um, we, we were very careful not to overclaim in the paper. And, and uh, the, we, I mean, it's a great, it's an in, enormous privilege to represent 39 authors on a paper. But actually the way that we wrote the paper um, uh, was that the four of the authors, so um, the three lead investigators and one of the other authors, um, we effectively had two weekends away where we sat down in a room and decided exactly how do we want to write this paper, how are we going to do it? And so we were very uh, um, focused on how we were going to do it. What the reviewers asked us to do was put a bit more emphasis in here or a bit less emphasis on other things. But actually what the reviewers asked us to do in the main, as is often the case, improved the paper, gave us an opportunity to explain ourselves a little bit better. But they didn't insist that anything was taken out or that anything else was put in. Um, so I think it ended up saying what we wanted it to say. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I think that would have been a big task for any, any reviewer. I'm sure their, uh, their comments was, was, was well, welcome. Well, we, we sent it off to the journal and uh, we asked for expedited review. And the journal were great, actually. They, they gave us expedited review because they recognised that it, it was hopefully going to be quite a significant paper. But what they also did was, um, in anticipation that some of the reviewers may not bring in the reviews on time, Instead of asking the standard three reviewers, they asked five. And all five reviewers reviewed it in the two weeks that they were given. So we got comments back from five different reviewers. Now, it was a challenge to rise to those comments, but um, it also meant that the paper had undergone very careful scrutiny and was better as a consequence. So I'm sure you're well aware of some of the... Uh, frustrations and challenges, but also the benefits of the peer review system. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I was uh, at a, 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 a human uh, conference meeting of, about critical care where, where those were discussed and maybe the review should be um, free to access as, as well so you can yeah. see different yeah. um, um, machinations of the of the of the project and, and what it what it you know what it bought I, I think that would be really interesting and there are many ways in which I think that would be an extremely useful exercise particularly for young authors to recognize what's in the process because as young authors you can have that terrible sort of gut-wrenching feeling when you get a bad review back and you've just got to kind of say just you know live with it let's see what happens that but the where that would require a change would be up front you'd have to obtain permission from the reviewers that they don't mind their comments going public now that may not necessarily be a bad thing because I almost never no, I say never I never write anything in a review that I wouldn't be I wouldn't be prepared to publicly defend because sometimes reviewers get a little bit personal um, but the the but you would need to get permission of people up front to do that but some journals do have an open review process so reviewers are named and also their reviews are published and i think if i wouldn't resist moving to that model but it would mean a change mm. i think it would be good as you said for the for the authors but also the reviewers but also the people that are actually interested in in the in the paper it, itself and yeah. to know a bit more about the detail because definitely well, you know, quite often certain things are omitted or, or added and, and it's interesting to know how that how that uh, comes about as, as I mentioned before, you, you, your, your uh, paper is meticulously planned as, as expected. Um, but is there anything that you would have liked to done, do have done differently? The uh, there are always things that one could add into a clinical trial, um, and actually, one of the things that I think we did well in planning this trial was strip a whole load of stuff out. That, that you can make clinical trials over complex and there have been examples of veterinary clinical trials where the, the enrolling patients was simply too complicated and that inhibited people from enrolling them, they didn't get into the trial. If there was one thing I would really like to have included, it would have been data on biomarkers. Um, I would have loved to have had N-terminal pro-BNP and maybe troponin from every dog going into the study. In fact, I would have liked them from dogs that we screened that didn't get into the study um, because then we could have learnt something about the benefits of longitudinally monitoring biomarkers and responsive biomarkers to treatment. Now, one of the reasons we didn't, because we did think carefully about this at the outset, was back when we were planning it, six or seven years ago, the assay that was then currently available for NT-Pro-BMP had a bit of a reputation for not being perhaps as stable as it could be. Now, that platform has Im improved immeasurably over the last six or seven years, but we had been, we'd kind of, several people around about that time had got burned by working with an assay that then subsequently changed, and so we kind of pulled out from doing that but if we'd added that in, I think that would have been of increased value. And where it would really have had value would be in terms of how that would help practitioners. Because um, biomarkers are wonderfully accessible. You know, everyone can take a blood sample um, and it doesn't rely on fancy echo measurements or anything else. So if I could do the whole thing all over again, I think that would be a nice thing to do. Otherwise, I think that looking at how it went and how it panned out 
um, there's not a lot that we would have would now do differently. And and do you think for the for the patients that um, that that died, do you think it would be good to have a look histologically at their at their heart muscle, or would that be a step too far, um, or not necessarily bring anything? It wouldn't help address our primary hypothesis. So as a side study, it would be nice to know, but not need to know. And I think one of the things that you always have to bear in mind is kind of keep your eyes on the prize. Why are you doing the study? You're doing the study because you want to know if the drug prolongs the time to the onset of clinical signs. That's all that matters. Anything else is just a side matter. Yes, it would be nice to do clever things with myocardium, and it would be lovely to get lots of fresh myocardium and find out what's going on, but that doesn't really address the primary question, which is, does the drug work? Do that in a different study. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, is there, or what, what is next for the for the group of collaborators? Well, have you uh, exhausted all, all friendships for the uh, six no, years? Most definitely not. In fact, I think it's brought us together working on this project, which is good. But the, um, well, the next obvious stage i mentioned earlier that there was longitudinal data that we obtained in this study that has not yet been fully fully analyzed and that might help a little bit more from the point of view of asking answering some of the questions actually about mechanism of action so did the pimabendan lead to a reduction in the dog's heart size don't know um, if it did how how does that feed into any apparent effect of the drug so there's more to come out of this data set i think in terms of additional future projects where I really think the goalposts have moved. I know that's a rather tired cliche, but, but they, 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 they really have moved because now the emphasis for this disease is suddenly finding the dogs that will benefit from the treatment. And, and I think, therefore, that the next big challenge is making finding those dogs easier. Because I think the barrier that will happen, in, inevitably, as we spoke earlier, my purest answer to the question has to be the way we find these dogs is with echo and radiographs. But is there another way? Is there a way in which we could readily identify dogs that were at risk of progressive disease and then, on the basis of far simpler criteria, treat them or not treat them, um, and see whether you can get an improved outcome that way. Because I think yeah, it may be a pipe dream, but the real lovely study would be simple inclusion criteria, simple randomization, measure a simple outcome, do you have a difference? Because that could really be relevant to first opinion practice and wouldn't exclude those clients or practices that can't provide echocardiographic evidence of cardiac enlargement. So that's my next big idea but it will take at least another seven years to realize that i should think absolutely absolutely well uh, i'd like to uh, thank you very much for your for your time and uh, and discussion about the epic uh, epic trial and and uh, i look forward to uh, more um, uh, epic style named studies in the future thank you very much my pleasure Thank you for listening to the RVC Clinical Podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Brian, who's uh, with the uh, faders and whistles, for helping and uh, his uh, patience with uh, recording this interview. And, uh, and obviously Professor Bodwood, Boswood again for his, his time today. And uh, no doubt there will be a, a lot of interest with this, with this uh, study. So it's great to 
uh, have him on the podcast to talk about this. The RVC podcast will try and get them out to you uh, every couple of weeks and have different speakers talking about different aspects of, of clinical practice. My name's Dominic Barfield. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you have any comments or, or questions about the show, please email me at dbarfield at harvc.ac.uk. Thanks again.